0: for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash pod Bye. Alice in Wonderland is a celebrated Lewis Carroll novel made only more popular by Disney's animated adaptation in the 1950s. In the story, Alice experiences strange phenomena such as feeling herself grow taller and shorter and enduring psychedelic scenes. A few years after the film was released, a term was coined for certain symptoms dubbed Alice in Wonderland Syndrome, in which distortions of vision occurred. One such symptom dominant in the syndrome was chloropsia, a disorder of vision where objects appear with a green tint. In 1996, Long Island band Vision of Disorder would sign to Roadrunner Records via a short-lived imprint, Super Soul, and released their debut album, the cover would become an image that resonated throughout their career as they felt themselves grow larger as a band. A green drip. This week on Meet Meep, Season 3 continues with the 25th anniversary of the self-titled album, Vision of Disorder. Welcome to Meet Meet the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influence. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters, and this week we got a corker for you. Vision of Disorder's self-titled debut album, Vision of Disorder, aka The Green Drip. We'll be speaking with VOD and Blood Simple Riff Ruler Mike Kennedy, but first, my fellow Aries Jeremy Bolm of Touche Amore fame was kind enough to tell me about Vision of Disorder's early influence on him as a fan of heavy music. Vision of Disorder's first album comes out in 1996 on Roadrunner. So was this album the first album that you heard, or did you, for me, I personally heard imprint first before i heard self-titled someone had showed it to me because they were like yo phil anselmo is on this song with the sky and they both busted their eye blood vessels screaming trying to outdo each other you gotta hear this band and i was like yeah i definitely gotta hear that band so then i went backwards and heard self-titled from there but was this your first exposure to vision of disorder
1: it was yeah um i was already like a pretty pretty big metal kid in 90 because is 96 right um when that record came out so yeah i would say I, I think i got it in like 97 i would say um before we started recording i was telling you about this record store up the street from me called TB cooper's which always just had used cds i grew up in burbank which is the media city capital of the world so like all the interns would basically just like steal you know boxes of cds of like promos and sell them to all the local record stores in the area so like You know, anytime I'd go in there, there'd probably be a stack of all the newest releases or old releases or whatever from all of these labels, uh, Roadrunner to like Warner Brothers to Sony to whatever. So I would often find all these CDs for like $4.99, $5.99 because it was owned by these really old guys who genuinely did not know what they had or cared. They were just like, you know, it was just product in their store. So they didn't know what stuff was worth or whatever. So anything that I saw in there that I found in there that had a Roadrunner records logo on the back, I would just buy, you know, I'd be like, whatever it's, it's on Roadrunner. I got it. It's gotta be good. (laughs) You know? And sometimes it wasn't, sometimes it was. Uh, So I bought that CD, not knowing anything about it other than just what a strange album cover. So I got it and I listened to it and I was like, just instantly down. Like I was so like, You know, I I don't know that I was able to necessarily differentiate between, you know, what made that record so much different than maybe the Fear Factories or the Sepulturas or anything like that, other than just like, oh, the vocals sound different. Oh, like there's kind of like a funky bass line here and there and like things like that. But um, I remember I really, really liked it. And it kind of stayed with me for a long time. And I, then I remember when imprint was coming out, um, I believe it was just like a year later it was 98 and actually noticing quite a big change in the overall tone of the band where like, it's just, I look at imprint as like such a dark gruff record. Like it's, it's, I don't, I can't think of any other albums that really sound like that. Like it sounds like almost everything on it is like peaking. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, so hyper distorted and just pissed it sounds it's one of the most angry records that i've ever heard whereas i feel like the first record is a lot more clean and you and you can really pick out kind of every little thing that's happening in it there's a lot of you know like wild tracks of uh, you know like overdubs and all these different vocals on top of one another and like everything is very crisp whereas like yeah like imprint sounds super blown out so i do remember that being one of the first records from like a band that I was really attached to the first record, then heard the new record and actually noticed the change. Like I feel like it was that, and then also far between Tin Kansas Strings to You and Water and Solutions, where it was like, oh, these are two, these feel sound like two almost like different bands in a way. Um, not as dramatic with VOD, but uh, but that's and it's funny because Sardi, D Sardi or whatever did Water and Solutions and Imprint, which is super interesting, in the same year.
0: The difference between Self-titled and imprint is so dramatic, not only in like you said, like just kind of the sonic landscape, but just you can tell that to me, it sounds like self-titled was what they were already kind of done being. You know what I mean? Like it almost seems like by the time that album came out, they were over that sound because they had already done the still EP, which a lot of those songs kind of bleed over. And that by the time they got to imprint, it was probably what they were already in their minds working towards it, it seems like a very natural progression I will say that it doesn't seem like jarring yeah. like maybe uh, a river runs red to ugly is where it's like oh guys we <laughs> what do you we uh we really loved what you were doing before and I don't know what's going on here <laughs> but my biggest thing with self-title two that I hear about now is that people don't like I guess how clean and polished it is compared to you know kind of their older school fans really like the um the rawness of the demo or the still EP, I should say, or I guess. Yeah. yeah. But to me, the, the polished aspect of it, which even polished is such a a subjective thing because it still sounds like gritty and angry and Mm -hmm. and aggressive. I think it brings out a lot of what makes those songs so great. You know, a a song like element, you know, that opens up, that also opens up my mind. (laughs) It's uh, it's just so intense because of that. I can hear every instrument. I can hear every aspect of it that I think it would be lost on the kind of production that the EP had before it.
1: I think you're I think you're spot on with that. Um, yeah, I, and I, I hadn't thought about what you had just said too with how it, they could have been already working towards the sound of Imprint. Because yeah, I mean, who knows? The, I, I don't even know if I know what year self-titled might have been recorded. It might have taken a while for it to f- eventually come out. Because yeah, I mean, like DTO is on still, right? And so it's through my eyes self-titled is still my favorite record from them as much as i love imprint i think because of that clean production i know every word to the self-titled record whereas i i don't know every word to imprint you know like the the vocals aren't as clear on a lot of that stuff so like it, it doesn't it never hooked me quite as much as the vocals in self-titled and that's not to say i just like imprint i fucking write hard for imprint but like you know so self-titled is is gonna always be my favorite record just because time and place introduction to the band and they might have been the first band that i remember like a first aggressive band that i remember hearing where i felt like um the the person in this band is like writing about actually like deep thoughtful uh, metaphoric uh philosophical all these different things which i hadn't really heard much in the genre before um i like metal as much as the next person or i certainly did at that time and like I never connected to much of it emotionally, or I couldn't really tell the difference in a vocal performance because, you know, there's a sincerity that felt maybe lost in some of the records I liked at the same time without realizing it. But the sincerity in the vocals on these VOD records is very obvious, you know, like between moments where his voice kind of cracks or. His voice sounds extremely blown out. Not a lot of people, I think, would would really do that. The sincerity on, on these records, especially that self title record, is is palpable.
0: You mentioned the the lyrics and the songwriting on there. It seems like on a lot of these songs. So we got "Suffer," that's talking about how he kind of seems like down on the straight edge movement because the, they're not able to understand the suffering he's going through, the need drugs and alcohol and then you got zone zero where he hates los angeles so most of this album is how he doesn't like you specifically <laughs> <laughs> yeah i
1: it's i remember i remember the first time i heard zone zero i was so excited because i don't think there was any songs in my life especially at that time i mean 96 i'm 13 years old like where i was like like he says los angeles and fucking like it's like engulfed in flames i was like yeah like it's just hard as hell and like you know every kid hates their hometown wherever they're, you know, wherever they are at that point in their life. So like, I remember just being like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like it's hard as hell. Um, and they were the first hardcore band that I ever saw live too. Like they were, that was the first hardcore show that I specifically went to like, like knowing that I was going to something different, you know what I'm saying? Like, but that was the show that also made me realize like, oh, this isn't just a metal band. Like, cause it was Buried Alive, Canderia, Scarhead, and VOD and uh, Buried Alive played first. And, and that's when I remember, I remember watching Buried Alive play with my friend and I'm and we we're just looking at the audience being like, oh, this is different. Like, <laughs> Everybody here is terrifying. Everyone is like, well, I don't know what they're doing in the mosh pit. I don't know what this... You know what? At the time, I didn't know what that kind of moshing was. You know, I was 13 years old, or at that point, 14, I think. But the only other hardcore band that I saw was Accidental, because I actually went to go see Far at the Roxy in '98, and Snapcase did a surprise set right before they played, and that was my first time seeing a band where I was like, "Wait, this is different. What are all these people doing here? Like, what are like what's happening in the crowd?" um but then yeah that that for that vod show was like the one i went to with like intent to see a band that was going to be different you know and it kind of it definitely changed my life where i was like oh this is this feels a lot more sincere this feels a lot more it's like i hadn't known what it felt like to be scared at a show before you know and like i think that speaks to younger people you know i I don't know that i necessarily want to go to shows you know now that I'm in my late 30s, where I want to feel scared. at, But like, as a teenager, that's like kind of a special feeling. I don't know if you can relate to that.
0: Yeah, definitely. The the danger and the violence makes it exciting. It's that thrill of like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I know that it's going to be memorable, though. I'm not going to forget it, whether it's because I have to go to the hospital or because I remember making it out alive and also having a good time. So I think it's that uh, that suspense, the same reason why we love horror movies or something like that.
1: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, you know, going to metal shows all you know at that time, especially a lot of new metal shows and stuff like all you would expect from the audience is like very drunk guys push moshing, like push pitting, or the audience pogoing. You know, it's like those were like the two things that happened. Like there really wasn't even much crowd surfing and things like that. So like seeing VOD in this like relatively small venue like the troubadour is like one of the most you know like praised loved venues in los angeles but it's only like 500 cap so like no barrier the whole thing so like i I remember feeling very like oh i don't know what's gonna happen here (laughs) like this is definitely intense
0: thanks to jeremy and if you want to hear even more about his relationship with vod check out his podcast, The First Ever Podcast, where he interviews their vocalist Tim Williams. Real cool. But I can't keep my cool when I think about how sick this Green Drip album is. And there's a moment where I prove it in this conversation with Mike Kennedy. We talk about the contrast between making the first Vision of Disorder album versus the first Blood Simple record, Ozfest, and Denim. Yeah, I mean Chaos AD was you would just listening to as well, especially Blood Simple, but Vision of Disorder, it sounds like Chaos AD would have been one of the first records you got into, you know what I mean? Uh
1: yeah,
2: very much so. And actually when we signed is a good Roadrunner story for you. When we signed uh uh with Roadrunner, as we were like being um, I guess groomed by by Howie Abrams, who was the and AR guy at the time, he brought us in. And it's funny, they have like Everywhere you go, you go into like rooms and there's like a band in there. It was like, you know, Doggy Dog's in there, Life agony's in there. And we walk in this other room and Max Cavalier is just sitting there and they play us Roots. And we were just like, oh, it's... I used this wall of sound. We were like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. And
0: it's still, it's still it still is actually.
2: It's still one of the best records,
0: heavy metal. Straight Hate, first of all, is named after the Roots song, I gotta imagine. secondly is like the cardio cheat code like you
2: (laughs) uh tim tim will never admit that he borrowed the name but you know probably
0: (laughs) so you kind of mentioned uh being you know when you're being groomed by roadrunner with howie abrams he's kind of told a story on here um about signing you and i've heard it that same story kind of told different ways so i'm interested to hear from your perspective so him and Ray Capo go to this P-Wax show that's like packed out. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, it, it's, it was crazy because, you know, we were, we were at a, a point in music. I mean, we were fresh out of high school. You know, we were like 1920 and we really started gaining a real, some real traction in, in Long Island. Uh, and I, I think what made us unique is that we, we weren't like really compartmentalized into either hardcore or metal. We really had a, a very unique sound that was uh, a kind of a blend of both. And I know that sounds probably normal today, but back then you were either hardcore or you were metal. They, like you didn't. So, so as a result, I think people really attached themselves or connected with the, the authenticity of that. They hadn't really heard anything about uh, like that, at least from from Long Island. Long Island kind of leaned more into the um, emo, lighter hardcore punk style. And obviously the New York sound was very you know, street, more aggressive, and you know, we kind of had this blend of all of the bands that we loved. So we started to get a, a bit of traction and, and a, a decent following. And a lot of that was by playing with metal bands at a club called The Roxy. I don't know if you remember The Roxy. We played with bands like Machine Head, and we, uh, one of our big breaks was that we played with Corn with with, with right when they were blowing up. And uh, you know, that for us was obviously a, a turning point. I think the PWAC show was a month, a couple months after that, it was like our headlining show. And we had been regularly gaining traction where we were drawing, you know, 500 kids. and it was like 600 to a thousand kids. We pulled up here and there was like two or 3000 kids with a line around the block. And by the way, PWAC, for those that don't know what PWAC is, it's a giant empty warehouse with a tiny stage and like a little sound system. No security, no guards, no nothing. It was just like, Three, two, three thousand kids packed into this, so kids hanging out of windows trying to climb into the place. It was madness. You know, how he had seen us there. And uh, Ray Capel had seen us play, I think, a few, a few months earlier uh, than that at a place called CC's in Scranton. and uh, We had gotten some following like in the northeast by just playing out. And he, we opened for shelter and he was like, I really love you guys. He had introduced in Howie and they came down to that show it was it was pretty quick and at that time you gotta remember like now you can sign to a million different record labels as a metal band or a hardcore band or whatever that is back then like if you didn't get discovered by roadrunner you didn't get discovered (laughs) like that was it so the fact that they were there was really incredible but uh we like the idea that it was ray capo's uh imprint on the label you know kind of added some some uh element of hardcore to what is otherwise a, a pretty metal uh, label with the exception of maybe mad at the time they had, and they had doggy dog and life of agony. So they were kind of like leaning in that direction, but
0: most of the bands they had on there were straight metal. How much of Ray Capo, or I guess you guys being fans of Ray Capo, did that play into you signing or was it more so like you just mentioned, it was that you had that hot, hardcore authenticity with the metal, which kind of was what your band's identity yeah. was.
2: I mean, I think Ray Capo was more of a figurehead for the label than he was uh, integral to any of the business, right? So like Howie was certainly more, once Howie Abrams got involved, the business kind of took over from there. Ray was definitely very instrumental in locating the talent. Like he was the person that was like, we opened for them. He was like, who the hell are you guys? And like, I've never, you know, this energy is incredible. I, w- I want you to meet. So he introduced us to all those people and a, you know, credit do he's the one that kind of hurt us as a potential good fit for a roadrunner who might have otherwise been a little bit confused or perplexed. Again, because we weren't really compartmentalized into either one way or the other. Uh Ray Kapper definitely was like, This you need to check these guys out.
0: Because no other releases happen with Roadrunner and Super Soul. It's just Vision of Disorder. And actually
2: Howie left right after that as well. So we were kind of like, you know, it's <laughs> It happened to us with Blood Simple too at Warner Brothers. Like, you know, our champions signed us. We were really embedded in the, the record label. And then all of a sudden they left and didn't really, didn't really have a representative. So, um, you know, uh, that was definitely challenging and probably one of the disadvantages we had at that
0: label. Before you signed a Roadrunner, you put out the still EP with the Juggalo homie slash star of the New York hardcore documentary, Kevin Gill. Yes. how does that how does that come about <laughs> oh
2: man how did kevin gill find us i think he found us off of new york's hardest we did a compilation that was just a bunch of hardcore bands and we had two songs on it and that got us a lot of attention and you know kevin gill was just a, you know he was just a, a scene guy he didn't you know his, his record label had a few really cool bands on it, but it wasn't by any means, you know, massive distribution. I mean, we were literally all folding seven inch inlays at his house before the release. Like that's what we were doing. It was just crazy. The kids even know what those are anymore. I don't know. Um. So, but, but, you know, he was a hustler and he, he knew good music and, you know, we, we liked him and he was, he was, you know, for the t- for what we needed at the time, it was perfect. All we needed was, you know, we were in a great position where, demand was pulling product from us what you know we just had to make music and at that time people would find it they would find it everywhere i would be getting re- uh letters from i think i put my home address at the time on like the first demo and i was getting like bags of letters from people in like japan and argentina and like like it's crazy so y- you know this probably as well as i do that the hardcore the metal scene but also like especially the hardcore scene these very devout followers like they will find you they know what's up So it wasn't like pop music where you had to be distributed through all these channels to be heard. It's like, they will find you if you are good and if you are resonating. So, you know, at the time we didn't really need someone to have these kind of hooks in all of the stores. We just needed someone that said, look, I have a little bit of, I have some distribution and here's a little bit of cash to go make a record. And that's all we needed at the time. And uh, it worked really well. we were, you know, it was a, it was a good partnership. And we, uh, you know, I still think that that, from a sound perspective, came out better than some of our records. I, that was just raw and just angry
0: and aggressive. It definitely has a different sound to it that even the songs that you kind of redo for the self-titled album. So on the self-titled record, which is you know, 3- <laughs> 311 had their self-titled blue album. The Beatles had the white album. You guys That's have the, the green drip, the green drip. Yes, that is true. You know, the the story of how that cover comes about is pretty pretty uh, casual like you guys just flip through a book or something and find this picture and you're like oh that looks like a disorderly vision we're gonna do that the still cover is this kind of like distorted woman emerging from the ocean and then even the re-release has like it's less distorted. it's kind of like a clear focus of it how did that cover get chosen uh total plagiarism we (laughs) stole it from an art book I don't <laughs> know.
2: Like, you can't do that today. I mean, look, again, we were like 19. We we're like, oh, this is cool. No one will mind. So, yeah, it was. An, I don't remember the name of the artist, but, uh, you know, uh, we took it. We we took a lot of inspiration from art books. Like I, I I remember even finding the green drip in like photography or art book. We also took uh, for the bleeders cover from an art book from a German artist, like a sketch artist. Um, I don't know. Just there was something kind of just uh fitting about that cover. And I think that calming, that calming effect that that photo had on us for still worked really, really well. It's funny because still that, that album cover came together really, really quickly. We were just like, that's something that's perfect. Uh, The green drip surprisingly took us a really long time. (laughs) It, it took us months to come up with that
0: I mean, it's iconic, you know, and what that means, I guess, is that, you know, it's easily recognizable. Nobody if somebody saw that cover without the Vision of Disorder logo on it, they know that it's your yeah. album cover. So uh, time well spent, I guess. But uh, yeah. the one thing about that, too, which I guess plays into the the disorderly vision of it and going back to Chaos AD that always weirds me out about that cover is like the font and the, the placement of it. It's like hard to read the name of the band. Was that? deliberate or that just wasn't thought out through. no that was just bad <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's funny the things that like retroactively become like you know oh. iconic or like what people find interest in because you they're typically just mistakes or just bad
0: so jamie Locke is the producer slash engineer on this as well as mad balls first two albums for roadrunner i know that i've read prior that and Matt Henderson has kind of said this too, that Jamie is like a great engineer, but maybe not the most hands-on producer as far as like kind of helping contribute to crafting the songs. And maybe that's what you were looking for, but what led to that choice being made?
2: Uh, Madball, straight up. We were like, we just, the Madball guys did it. We were in absolutely in love with Set It Off. That was one of our favorite records at the time. You know, we didn't have huge budgets and, you know, those we had a couple options and that was the one we chose. Um, but, you know, I... <laughs> you're right. Like good producers, like take the helm and they're like, they guide you. It's you as the band. And you know, we're, we're not the kind of musicians that would just sit back and let someone else do it. But, you know, uh, having someone man the helm is probably a good thing, especially at our age, especially with like that being our first record. We had a lot of pressures. There was a lot of, we'd already had a huge fan base. so It's not like we were starting from scratch. We felt like, okay, we have to live up to this. And I think as a result, we kind of, we kind of got in our own way. He let the monkeys run the zoo, as they say. (laughs) So There's a lot of great things about that record, but I think sonically it it didn't, it didn't add up to where we
0: wanted it to be. Can you contrast that to working with Garth Richardson?
2: Garth took control in the way that you want a producer to take control, but not in a way to obfuscate what your true sound is. Like he really took your sound to the next level by finding what was special about us. Like, you know, at that time we wanted to be heavy. Like, you know, Tim and I were kind of like coming off of from bliss devastation. We're like, you know, I I feel like maybe we, that record wasn't as heavy there again, things about that record I really love, but there was definitely some sense that maybe the record is not, was not as heavy as we wanted So coming off of that, we definitely had, you know, um, this this, uh, desire to do some very, very intense and heavy music. But in that world, as you you probably remember in the early 2000s, there was still a lot of rock radio. So there were still these like pressures, if we're going to make a major label, do you need singles? And do you need all this stuff? And that stuff was still kind of meandering in our thoughts. So, you know, most of the album was really heavy, but we had a couple of these songs where could have kind of went either way and he was like we are making a heavy record and we that was before we even chose him and we were like that's the producer we want um he just got it right away he was just an amazing producer he just trimmed all the fat and just made sure that like we were focused and great vocal producer really brought the best out of tim uh and sonically the tones on that album are still i think to this day stand the test of time
0: yeah, they're pummeling, right? Like you listen to that first Blood Simple record, and it sounds like it could have come out today. Versus, like you kind of alluded to, the self-titled sounds of the time, like recording-wise.
2: Uh, it's funny because when I was playing that for some friends back in Long Island, and they had all had expected, you know, coming off of uh, from Bliss Out Station, that I kind of put out something very rock or maybe radio-friendly. And we played our first single, and it was straight hate. <laughs> they heard the end, they're like, okay, all right, so we're not going for rock radio, that's good, which we weren't. We really just wanted to make music that we loved. I mean, there's a couple songs that lean into some more melodic stuff, but, you know, we, we always had that piece of us.
0: Did you ever consider asking Matt Henderson to produce the record?
2: Uh, No, but we would never not consider Matt Henderson. I, he was great, man. That guy was like, he was like a surgeon with the guitar, man. Perfect in his, the way he played. So uh, he would have definitely been on the table for sure.
0: I was just thinking about, you know, you're saying that you loved set it off and I know that Jamie. Is the time,
2: the- yeah. It just didn't come up. I don't, I don't know why in retrospect, that would have been <laughs> amazing. Yes. I, I, I can't, I don't think it, I don't think that came up actually.
0: Of course, around this time, you're touring with a lot of hardcore bands, Earth Crisis. Uh, You kind of mentioned Dog Eat Dog, Shelter, of course. And then you did that run uh, or not run that show with Corn, And you kind of have those elements of that kind of more modern rock that's happening at that time. I know that you're friends with and in a scene of hardcore bands, but listening to that album in retrospect, I would never be like, Oh, this is, these guys probably play with a lot of hardcore bands, you know, and it just doesn't have those same elements, probably because it's a little bit more progressive and ahead of its time. And the, the singing I'm sure is a big part of it too. So you do this tour Ozfest 97 after the record comes out and it's kind of a mix of those things. You got rock bands like drain STH, You've got super new metal bands like Coal Chamber. And do you find that touring with those bands kind of helped push you in the direction that things like Imprint and From Bliss to Devastation went into? I think
2: so. Um, Well, Imprint was less influential and more about attitude. Or I should say less influenced in terms of what we were feeling at the time. We were feeling aggressive. Uh, Aggressive. We were feeling a little bit frustrated, certainly as how the first record came out sonically. I say that I know people love that record and and there's things about that record that I love, but i again, I just wish it came out a little heavier. You know, in print, we were in a different mindset. We were very insulated and like, yes, of course, there were things that we were listening to that, you know, would come out in the music we were playing, but generally speaking, we were just pissed off. And you, we wrote that album in a room every day. We didn't have to go anywhere. We didn't have jobs. We just showed up every day and wrote songs. And we did that for like eight months. And, you know, unlike the first album where there's songs from different eras of VOD, I say different eras, but like, you know, some off the, you know, the seven inch, some off of this, some off of that. Like we wrote every one of those songs in a six to eight month period. So they all had this kind of tonality and this aggression to them that were just off the charts. And, uh, I think what what we really started to develop in that sort of, um, you know, combination of just being together a lot was this way of arranging songs that was unique and this way of writing songs that was unique. You just just hear the ebb and flow of the band that that was uh, playing together in a way. I mean, the way we recorded that album was just live. (laughs) We just plugged in a bunch of mics and played. Yes, we overdubbed some stuff, but that was a live recording. Think about that now. Bands don't even play together now. They don't even play together until they play their first show, for the most part, now. They write songs on a computer. They all record their instruments separately. We wrote and then recorded that album front to back, wrote it in eight months, recorded it front to back in like 18 days or something, including the mix.
0: Not unlike Chaos AD and Roots.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and those, and you can feel it on those albums. They just, there's a, there's a cadence that you have when you're playing with your band members that you can't replicate. And even on the first album, when everything was separated, like you just didn't have that energy because you're playing things to what you think the tempo should be versus when you're playing together, you're going to go off of adrenaline and, and emotion and it's just different. So yeah, I would say on, on imprint, although there were some influences, I think Bliss and Devastation is where you really start to see the impact of out- outward influences coming to affect us and the music we we're playing. And some good,
0: some not so good. Mike F., not you, other Mike. So Mike Fleischman, he's listed as, so there's, on the credits of this record on my CD booklet, there's the four of you listed as the band. And then it says underneath that in a different font that Mike Fleischman does all the bass.
2: So Mike Fleischman, this is the first album. Mike Fleischman quit. So our the mix was so pugilistic amongst the band members and even Jamie Long, like, again, the, the monkeys were running the zoo. So rather than a cohesive sh- stream of, of consciousness saying, this is how we want to sound and we can tweak from there, it was like, do that and you do this and hey, bring this up and bring that up. And he would just be like, <laughs> again, we were like, you know, 20 years old, was like out of our minds, you know, just like stressed out and worried about the wrong things. And that's never how we had done music before. We just got in a room and played. So, um, you know, I think, uh, the pressures got to him and, uh, he quit, you know, we, we did a few tours with another bass player and it was not good. He, he's such an integral part of our sound. And, uh, you know, we finally just made made, a, made up and moved on, <laughs> but it was,
0: uh, yeah, it was crazy. So it was really that contentious when you're recording this album, you guys are kind of butting heads, not really. Yeah.
2: A lot of weird stuff happened. It was like Tim lost his voice for the first time ever. I'd never heard that happen. And we had to go record a lot of the vocal tracks. So Tim and I spent like a month in Boston at a different studio. Um, Fleischman quit. Uh, You know, you can, you can almost sense that there was a lot of this, you know, contention. It doesn't feel cohesive in a lot of parts, and I could feel, you can feel in some level, the band just did not come together the way we have on other albums. Um, so, but, you know, and again, I still think the album is, is, is a worthy album. I, I think it just, if, if it had really hit the way we wanted it to, it would have been just over the,
0: you know, through the roof you have a different perspective of it because you know what you wanted it to sound like and you know what you were coming to the album with. But me, listening to Still and then listening to Self-Titled, most of my friends think that Still is like the be-all, end-all because it's raw and it sounds more aggressive. And I can't disagree with that. But I think there's something about the polish to Self-Titled that actually makes it hit harder for me, that I actually like it more. Also, a big reason for that is just the songs that are on here. So I know you mentioned that it's got elements to it that are kind of like a patchwork of previous demos and 7 Inches and stuff like that, but when you wrote Element, this life-changing song that redefines how my brain understands music, at like 25 seconds when the screaming comes in and it actually goes into like the bar chord riff, when you're coming together with that, are you realizing, obviously you're not realizing, hey Ryan in 25 years is going to be really geeking out about the song. But are you like, oh, this is, we're definitely going in the right direction with what we're doing? Because that song's a lot different than what came before it.
2: Yeah, I I think, uh, no, it's a great question. I think that, you know, what made VOD unique was that there was never some, there was never this contrived element to what we were doing. We never sat down and said, let's write a weird song with crazy, like, you know, arrangement. We just, you know, I wrote that song front to back on the riffs. I think Matt added one of the melodic parts, but like, that was pretty much written like that. Like we just have, we, we all think in weird time signatures and arrangements and we were able to push and pull tempos in a way. So once you start to play them live with a drummer and you could really, you know, kind of like wind it up and wind it down, like to drop that breakdown or something, uh, that song just came to life. Uh, yeah. And you know, that it doesn't like repeat, The one part doesn't repeat until the end of the song. I didn't even realize that until like, like a couple of years ago, we were rehearsing for something. I'm like, this song doesn't even have a repeating part until the end. <laughs> it, it, like, we just thought like our brains were all programmed like that. And we all worked together in a way that really moved that train of thought forward. And uh, I think that's what made us a really progressive band is that not only did we not try to do that, that just came organically and naturally. The ability to just write weird time signature or weird arrangements that worked well to the listener.
0: Yeah, that was one thing that I noticed about it, kind of just analyzing it versus just listening to it uh, in preparation to talk to you about is that there's so many songs in here that are stuck in my head that, you know, I remember parts and things like that. Of, But there's very few like choruses on the whole album. You know what I mean? There's uh, Through My Eyes has a repeating instrumental guitar riff that that kind of starts the song and then it comes back in for the, you know, the. But it's not a lyrical Repetition is just that riff comes back in. So you remember subconsciously, I'm sure, like, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember rocking out to this two minutes ago. So I think that that's uh, an interesting part of it, too, is that there is kind of all sorts of weird, wacky stuff happening throughout it, but it's never to the point where it makes it like a chore or a challenge to listen to. It's very like natural the way it sounds.
2: Yeah, I think if you're going to write music that, um, you know, is more linear versus repetitive. The pieces it needs to evolve in a way that you know engages the listener. So you know uh, the reason pop songs are easy to remember because it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. There's this repetition to it, right? This is the hook. If you're gonna you're gonna move away from that template, it has to be building in a way that you know is gonna have a moment, or you know just has these one or two pieces of a song that are just like so impactful that you still grab onto it, even though it's not this repetitive. Pop hook. Uh and again, we just I say we, like Tim was always good with like these just, you know, anthony type vocals where there would be that point of the song where the whole floor would just jump up literally and just jump on top of us uh and just swallow us and like basically grab the mic and just take over. And we always we always just organically had one of those pieces of to the song. And now you know, you hear it a lot in today's heavier bands, but again, it you know, like it's it's like built it's built into a formula now. So like, it feels more contrived. Whereas back then, it's just what felt right. And you know, we never, we never ever once said this is the part that all of the kids are going to grab the mic and do the thing. We just said this is what feels good to us,
0: and uh, here's a tape of it. <laughs> <laughs> Were there songs that you got to hear? tim's vocal approach for it before you guys went to record it because i would think the way that you're saying it kind of all kind of came together that you're in the studio and you're first hearing you know something like i don't know on (laughs) well i guess dto is an older song but you know there's certain parts that are like almost like a mosh call but they're built into a real lyric so it doesn't sound like it's you know kind of being minimized to that
2: we wouldn't hear them dissected, but we'd hear them in the studio. When I say in the studio, I mean, we were in a rehearsal studio, we were playing together. So we would like, all right, let's play. Okay, let's go through DTL. Let's go through Beneath the Green. We would all just play it together. So that was like our rehearsal. It's not like we would just have, you know, guitars, you know, and then once we're in the recording studio, then Tim would come in and lay vocals down. That start, that did happen here and there. It happened, you know, later on when we were doing tracks and we only had music done and he would just go in and blast out vocals in the studio. But typically we'd have the we'd have the song completely written. So we knew what he was doing was pretty sick. We didn't know what the hell he was saying. (laughs) So that we didn't in many cases didn't discover that until, you know, um, uh, recordings or, you know, we actually opened the album sleeve and we're like, oh, that's what he's saying. I don't even think he knew what he was saying until, <laughs> until no, I'm kidding. He was like a very intentional uh, lyricist. He was great, but there were some parts that he would just be making noises and then like they would develop into something. But uh, you know, yeah. Like I, like, and also we would play so many shows that like, we would be, we perform songs live before they weren't on, on the albums. Like, you know, so up until imprint, we were playing shows and playing songs live. So it's not like, we would would know their reactions to these songs before they were getting put on any sort of recording.
0: DTO specifically sounds like it's kind of designed for people to beat the hell out of each other with the lyrics. Like, I mean, it opens up with the, get up, And then there's also later, like, what's up? You know, this is like, it seems very deliberate. It wasn't.
2: Uh, It's hard to say that now because, but in, like, it's really important to note that this was in, like, what, three or four? that it didn't exist there was no reference to say like there's going to be this crazy hardcore show with people are on top jumping on top of you like it just didn't exist but yes there were hardcore shows yes they were fun but we started playing at like smaller diving uh clubs like called the right track in in long island and like you know hammerheads in long island and like bond street and lower uh the lower east side of manhattan and you know it just it didn't really have that element we didn't didn't exist i mean it did obviously for bands like ignostic front maybe but uh in our world we didn't really see it we just again we're really writing music that spoke to us what happened with us where this these scenes kind of all came together it was not just us alone but there was this elevation of that scene that happened throughout those 90s that was really amazing nothing was intentional in terms of what the effect live would be it was just about writing cool songs
0: yeah, that's the biggest aspect I think of Vision of Disorder in general. When I'm talking to people about it, is by the time I found out about VOD, imprint is already out. In fact, from Blister Devastation might have been about to come out. And the first time I saw you was with Scrape. All right, so by this at this point, all these things have already homogenized in a good way. You know, I'm to me when I'm seeing VOD or Scrape, it's the same. You know, these these newer bands with a U, they're all kind of the same thing in a in a way that I'm not separating them not like oh this is a hardcore band or this is whatever so when i go back and listen to this you know it has all these elements that became bigger things and more um commonplace like a lot of the rhythms on here i think are very you know inspirational to other new metal bands I and mean, there's there's even exact like passages on here that sound like specific songs by bands that i like like there's a part in um there's a part in zone zero that sounds exactly like the verses of a taproot song The the title track on Seven Dusts Home has like parts that sound like uh, VOD. Not to say that they are deliberately being like, oh, we're gonna copy this VOD part. But
2: I I love the influence stuff. I, I I always felt like VOD was a band that influenced a lot of bands. Right? Like we don't always reach, we didn't reach the final consumer as 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 deeply as maybe some of the bands after us did that you know were more commercially successful, but we definitely influenced a lot of bands. We were a band's band. Funny enough, you mentioned Scrape. You know, I don't know if you know the trivia. That's where we met Will Hunt, who ultimately became the blood Simple drummer. Oh, I did not know that. That tour that you just mentioned was where we met Will Hunt.
0: Currently of Evanescence fame.
2: So we, we met, we, you know, we, we hit it off. And then he found out we were doing a, uh, like a new project at the time. It was a side project. And he was like, I want to be in the band. He had his Evanescence, so we had kind of, like, missed each other. But by the second record, he was in the band.
0: Oh, wow. That is actually really cool. Yep. He's still a bro. Because, uh, you know, two songs in particular that stick out on here are Liberation, which has my favorite guitar parts out of any song on the album, which I feel like that song doesn't get as much love as it should, probably because (laughs) it's on the same album as Element, so it's not even fair. But it has, like, that kind of, like... 80s like Pantera riff halfway through it, you know what I'm talking about, yeah, and then it ends with that really, you know, new metal single note riff. Yeah,
2: too. that 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 had a good lot of good um, melody on. Like there was some good melodic parts on that song. Wow, I haven't heard of that song. At all. I wrote that one right before uh, we finished the first record. That was one of the last songs we wrote for the first record. We were in uh, rehearsal studio. And that was one of the last ones that came up. We had never played that live. That was there's like most of the songs on that album had been tried and true, we played them live. But there's probably maybe four or five songs that we had just just written before the album came out, and that one was one of them.
0: Viola or viola, spelled in the liner notes as Vio, capital L A. Is this based on a person or a place? Person: Henry Lee Lucas's mother. Look it up. Okay. <laughs> I'll go do some reading. He's a serial killer.
2: (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that we'll ask Tim. This is my Tim impression. But yeah, you know, uh, it's just a thing that I had. Don't worry about it. So we're like, all right,
0: Tim. Tim's on The Sopranos. (laughs) He is. he's, He's like, you know,
2: he's got a raspy voice.
0: So aside from just the general mix of it, is there anything specific on when you listen back to this album that you would have done differently as far as maybe like an arrangement or something like that?
2: Well, I, look, the songs are great. I would have probably put on some of the I would have put on Choke. Probably. Uh, I would have probably made sure we played together because we we are, again, one of our superpowers as a band. And back then, this wasn't a big deal. But now they don't do it. It's like, we all played together. We played the songs, we rehearsed the songs, right. They weren't verse, chorus, verse chords. You had to like write them and map them out and you had to memorize them. So the idea that these tempos would be all over the grid was what made us unique to listen to, because it just went against, it went with what you were feeling. It wasn't like this grid. And, uh, you know, we didn't do that on that record. So I wish we had, and we had done that on all the other records since. And, um, It wasn't there was no the drum tracks were clicked to the natural tones or uh tempos so we would like after that we would play the songs live then we would map out the tempos and repeat them based off of all of the you know strange tempo changes and inflections that we had as a band so we were able to just just so we can have some continuity if we wanted to repeat things but like it was all based off of that the ebb and flow
0: of the live playing yeah, that's my thing that I would change about it is I would have you had choke on here, which I know you do for, for the bleeders, but one of the coolest things a band can do is say their own name in a song. So the fact <laughs> that, Agreed. That, that being left out is a, a bit, and, and you still played it the whole time. I mean, it wasn't like you ever dropped it from a set. It's, so. an anthem. it's an anthem. I don't know what the hell we were thinking. You mentioned that you met Will on this tour with a uh, scrape. Did you have any, kind of lifelong friendships that were started on Ozfest. I mean, I got to imagine there's crazy things that oh, happened on there.
2: Yeah. Oh My god. Uh you know, we we met Rob Flynn and the Machine Head guys on Ozfest and they were really great to us. They were uh very gracious and you know, they were on they were on the main stage and they would come over regularly. They, Rob Flynn was always a big fan of Tim's like vocally. I think they just really kind of connected and Uh, he saw a lot of, even, even when we were, we, we opened with, for them in Long Island before we even got signed and they were like, who are you guys? And he was just very enthralled with Tim's vocal style. You know, again, no one was doing that back then, really a a little bit, but not in the, not with the dichotomy that Tim was able to do, where you had this like aggressive screamer and then these really beautiful singing parts, like it just didn't happen back then. So I think he was just very enthralled with what, you know, we were doing as a band. He liked hardcore. So when we did Auspets with them, they were just really gracious to us and, and fantastic. Uh, you know, we we got to meet the guys from Pantera who incredible, incredible dudes. Really, really nice. Very open arms, just wanted to drink and party and have fun. And Dimebag was like the nicest guy you could ever meet with no like, no snobbery whatsoever. Like the biggest band on the planet. It was like, hey man, come have a drink. You know, great, really, really, really great people. And and obviously Tim and I uh, Tim and uh, uh, Phil connected there. Phil did a lot of side dates with us. We had these like, you know, with OzFest, you don't play every day. It's every uh, like three or four shows a week. So in between in between those dates, you would do off-dates. Off so some of the bands from the, the tour would get together a roster. So a lot of the off-shows were Neurosis and us. And uh, he was friends with the Neurosis guys. So he would just be with us on the off-dates. So we would be like, you know, in in like a small town in Alabama, and it would be us and Erosis and Phil and Selmo like hanging out in the cafe, like just waiting to play. It was surreal, and uh, you know, he he and Tim became friendly, and ultimately he ended up singing on Imprint as a result of that, which was such a great experience. Yeah, Osfest was incredible, man. It was like a dream come true. Again, back then in '97 you really kind of had to choose what side of the fence you were on. There was hardcore metal. Now there's metal. There was no metal core back then. So like, I don't think we did well, don't get me wrong, but I think a lot of people didn't know again, how to compartmentalize us. So we had our fans and we were acquiring new fans, but not at the rate that cold chamber was acquiring new fans. Like they were, this is our thing you know, we wear fishnets and we're on the radio and like, you know, everyone just showed up wearing fishnets and listened to the radio <laughs> and like that's like, we just didn't have that sort of mass appeal. We were proggy and weird and people were like, I've never heard this before.
0: So. Well, style wise, you guys were pretty OzFest 97 though, right? With the basketball jerseys <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. chain wallets.
2: I had some chain wallets. I might have some bleach
0: hair. Shit happens. No, I'm, I'm I mean, saying that with respect and admiration.
2: Apparently, Jengos are back in style though, and I was rocking a hell of a lot of those on that tour.
0: Well, let me tell you something about Jinkos, and this is important that people <laughs> people seem to forget, but maybe you'll remember. They were expensive as hell. I couldn't get Jinkos when I was younger; they were like hundred and twenty dollars jeans, and this is in the nineties. So that's like two hundred dollars jeans. Now I had to get what was called Lee Pipes, which were oh, like the J.C. Penny oh, off brand.
2: No,
0: uh, that's. Don't
2: ever tell anyone that ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: telling the world right now,
2: letting them know. <laughs> oh, man. Only thing worse than JNCOs are rip Oh man, I had
0: <laughs> one pair of JNCOs and it was because my neighbor was going to throw them away because he was rich. He was getting a new pair. They were called flame heads. I remember I don't even think they were my they were my size. But, you know, back then. None of nothing you wore. Was your Oh, so. it
2: was, no completely not. That's hysterical, man. Uh I you know, like we were with concrete management we managed Pantera and we were on the Osfest and doing a bunch of stuff. So we would just get boxes of Adidas and like all these different clothes would I think we I think we got Jingo's actually.
0: Judge none, choose one jeans you were endorsed by, is what you're saying? We got some really good endorsements back then, I will say. I, yeah. question, but I'm I, I'll spare you. I will ask.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can talk boggles all day, man. I'm okay.
0: <laughs> the way I found out about VOD was I was really into Fear Factory and Machine Head. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who, and Fear Factory, they also were one of the few bands that were kind of doing that clean singing and the heavy music. So yeah. I yeah. don't know if you guys bonded over that or were rivals on OSTES <laughs> because of it. So this guy is like, you got to hear this band, Vision of Disorder. Phil Anselmo's on a song and the singer, Tim blew out his eye vessel trying to scream as hard as Phil and Selma. Did that really happen?
2: Mm-hmm. No. So my
0: whole VOD legacy is a lie? Man. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> as a matter of fact,
2: in this, I wasn't there in the studio, but if you hear Tim tell the story, Tim was coming off of eight months of rehearsals with us day after day, after day, Phil was not. So when Phil got in the studio, Tim heard him do a couple he went first to record and he did his first couple tracks and Tim was like not sound good and then he said he warmed up and he was like okay okay thank god (laughs) (laughs) and Tim went in and like blasted it out in like two seconds and Phil apparently said holy shit that was amazing like it was he was done in two takes Tim and Phil took him a while so no But I like your legacy. I think that's hysterical.
0: Well, yeah, if you could just perpetuate the story, I just told you instead.
2: I wasn't, look, I wasn't there for either of them. So uh, they could, any of them could be true. They're all alternate realities as far as I'm concerned. But I know Tim was very dialed in with his voice at that time because we were literally rehearsing every day. He flew down from the rehearsal studio right to Phil's house, spent two days with him and came back. So like he was on fire. And Phil was doing nothing, no, I don't say nothing at the time, but he was in between tours, so he, he was not singing. Were you involved in Skull Crusher at all? I was not, that was some of our, our friends though. Like, yeah, you know, we, again, it's a, it's a group of friends from Long Island, I was not involved in Skull Crusher. That was actually, they had some really good songs though. I always kind of wanted to hear that. Another, another little piece of uh, trivia, I quasi started a record label, I tried to start a record label. And Skullcrusher was going to be one of the first bands we did a, like an EP with. It was Skullcrusher and another band that was like local from the area. I really wanted to be in the record business at the time. Thank God I didn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was going to say, then you uh, experienced it for a little while, and
2: you're like, oh, you know what? Maybe not. Yeah, I decided to go into something way more sustainable. I own restaurants in Brooklyn. <laughs> that was a much better idea.
0: What is your fondest memory of making this album? I know you have a lot of, uh, I don't want to say regrets, but things you... Uh, look back on and you're like, oh, we could have done that differently. But what do you look back on fondly about it other than just the legacy it may have?
2: We recorded at this beautiful studio in Massachusetts. It was so nice and we were in nature. Uh, so the first the first part of recording that album was really blissful and really amazing. Things started to kind of fall apart after that. But it, being away as a musician together with your bandmates was a phenomenal experience. And I, you know, any any band... I hope they get the opportunities to do that these days.
0: Being a band, that that era of vision of disorder from between self-titled and imprint.
2: Oh, those shows are, being able to travel the world, play with such amazing bands like Sick of It All and, and Machine Head and some of the people with the friends we made, like having, being able to play those shows live, I still feel like there's nothing like it on the planet in terms of any sort of adrenaline rush. Um, I've jumped out of airplanes. I rock climb. All of that is like chasing that that adrenaline rush that you get when you play live. You cannot replicate it, and that was a special time for that.
0: Thanks to Mike Kennedy for the knowledge and the riffs, but maybe most of all. That everyone my whole life who tried to tell me VOD didn't have new credentials can shut their mouths and widen their pant legs because they were sponsored by Jinko. And if you want to help the show go from leap pipes to the real deal, please go on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, share this on your social media. You won't get shadow banned. In fact, you'll get promoted. And follow the show on Instagram at Pod. There's pictures. Thanks for hanging out, we'll talk next week. In the meantime, I'm Ryan Rainbow. this is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye!